Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. As long as humans have existed, we've had to choose between our lower and higher desires, between what we want in the moment and what we want in the long term. As long as humans have existed, we've had to exercise self-control. While exercising self-control has always been part of the human condition, our ideas about it have changed through the ages, as have the number of obstacles to doing so. My guest charted the course of these changes in his book, Temptation, Finding Self-Control in an Age of Excess, and he takes us on a tour of them today. His name is Daniel Axt, and we begin our conversation with the definition of what self-control is. We then discuss our Freudian psychology and the scientific study of self-control, took it from being something the ancient Greeks and Romans considered an essential virtue of character to something you shouldn't or even couldn't exercise. We also talk about what it is about the modern age that makes self-control uniquely difficult to put into practice. We end our conversation with how, despite the addition of complexities and hindrances, self-control remains a fundamental resource in a flourishing life. And Daniel shares practical tips for preserving yours by changing your environment, so you actually don't have to exercise self-control as much. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash self-control. All right, Dan Axt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. So 11 years ago, you wrote a book called Temptation, Finding Self-Control in an Age of Excess. It's also sold under the title, We Have Met the Enemy, as well. I'm curious, what was going on in your life back in 2011 where you're thinking, I really need to take a deep dive into the history and the science of self-control? That's a great question. I need to go back a ways, if you don't mind, and mention that I had a gentleman, was an uncle by marriage, who was quite overweight, and extremely so. And at that time, it was it was really quite rare. He was an outlier, and he had a very early stomach reduction surgery and, you know, gastric bypass type of thing. They used a different technology in those days. But in any case, I ended up writing a novel about a man who goes through that and is transformed physically and is unrecognizably so. And the novel got some good attention. And so people started coming to me to write about these matters and think about these matters. And I realized that there was a great deal going on that posed challenges to our ability to regulate our appetites in a society that valued freedom and individuality and all of those good things, which I happen to value. 
And so I ended up delving into it on a number of fronts and writing a book about it. Yeah, and you, so you start off the book, I thought it was really interesting. You talk about all the problems we have in our current society that you can attribute to a lack of self-control. So one is obesity is one. What are some other things you were seeing at the time that you're like, well, this is just a lack of self-control? Yeah. I mean, really, when people are free, I mean, they can get in trouble in all kinds of ways. You can get in trouble with alcohol. You can get in trouble with drugs. You can get in trouble with food. You know, there are a whole bunch of behaviors. Cigarettes, obviously, are a very dangerous habit to have. Tobacco, generally. After I wrote the book, we had the opioid crisis. And gambling has been increasing. The availability of gambling has been growing before I, you know, some years ago when I was young, there was gambling in Nevada and then New Jersey came along and that was mostly it other than, you know, your neighborhood bookie. But by the time I wrote the book, there was some form of gambling in a large number of states, not to mention lotteries. And now all these years later, we have professional sports gambling spreading and uh, available, you know, on your phone in everybody's pocket. So we went from the difficulty of having maybe to go all the way to Vegas or, or something to being able to just take out the phone in your pocket and place a bet. And, and so there are a lot of opportunities. In some ways, there's a lot of opportunities for fulfillment, for pleasure in our society, which is marvelous. But there are, along with that, a lot of opportunities to, to go very far wrong. The gambling thing is interesting. So here in Oklahoma, we have, there's a, the tribes have casinos, but also we have a state-sponsored lottery like a lot of other states do. And I thought that was funny. I noticed the other day when I was in a, a quick trip, you know, you're at the checkout, you see all the lottery tickets. Then I also saw an advertisement about there's a state agency now where there's a phone number you can call if you have a gambling problem. I just thought that was ironic that, okay, we, we created this agency to create the lottery, but then we had to create another agency to help people with their gambling problem at the same time. That's very common. We have it in New York State as well, that sort of thing. But what's very interesting, there are so many aspects to this that are interesting, but with respect to gambling, what I like is that in quite a number of places, there are no gambling registries. For example, in some states and Canadian provinces, you can sign yourself up for uh, an irrevocable period of time to be barred from casinos. And in fact, there was a fascinating legal case in, I can't recall if it was British Columbia or one of the other Western Canadian provinces where some gamblers had lost very large sums of money after registering themselves to be barred from these casinos. And they then snuck into the casinos and lost all of this money and then sued the casinos, claiming that the casinos had been negligent in not barring them. So, <laughs> you know, it's a very difficult problem. It's sensible to try to use a technique of this kind, and yet so many of them can be circumvented. It's very hard to bar yourself from doing something like this. And it's just a back and forth that we're always going to have to cope with in a free society. And the more things that we permit, the more we're going to have to control ourselves. Well, another issue, you were writing this book right after the, the Great Recession. Yeah. And you attributed, you know, you could partly blame a lack of self-control on the, the recession because you had banks making you know, loans that they probably shouldn't have made, people taking on leverage they probably shouldn't have, and it's because they just wanted more even though they probably shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, there's, there's just no denying it. I mean, it's so many of our excesses, 
you know, could be prevented by some prudence and some self-control. Well, I'd like to, maybe for this discussion, we can talk about how the ideology of, okay, you need to constrain yourself in order to live a flourishing life. How did that go from a good thing to where, you know, kind of giving into your wants is a, is preferred. But before we do, let's talk about just kind of definition, like how do you define self-control? Because I think a lot of people, when they hear, they think, okay, I know what self-control is. It means there's something I want to do, but I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. When you were writing this book, what kind of definition did you settle on? That's a great question. And I would say, and you know, conversationally, I would say that it is the ability to, or the willingness to, or both, to honor one's more considered desires. Let's put it that way. In the book, I talk about two levels or two kinds of desire that you might have. You know, I just if my wife brings home a delicious pie or something, I just want to sit down and eat the whole thing. And that might be a first order desire that I have. But a second order desire, a more considered desire I have would be to be healthy and stay trim and not hog all the pie so that there's some for her or if our boys come over or something. And so if I can adhere to that, self-control would be the ability or the effort to adhere to that more considered desire. So maybe I'll have a piece of pie and a cup of coffee and that's the end of it for now. And, you know, there are those like uh, the philosopher Harry Frankfurt, who has said that really this is what makes us human. Harry Frankfurt said that if you don't have those considered desires, you know, or you don't honor them in any way or very much, then you're what he called a wanton. And a human is someone who honors those desires. Because after all, if my neighbor has, I don't know, some great patio chairs and I, boy, I covet those. I mean, I don't go over and swipe those, you know, even if nobody's looking and I can put them on the other side of the house, that's just a bad thing to do. <laughs> I don't do it. So Harry called them wantons. And, you know, the Greeks and others throughout history have had a similar disdain for people for this kind of thing. People regard it as a lack of character, you know, that it almost meant you couldn't be trusted if you couldn't honor these more reasonable or these considered desires, if you didn't have them even. So that's, I guess, a longer answer than you may want, but how I look at self-control. No, yeah, I've heard that that first order wants or first order desire, second order desire distinction before. And the way, one way I had it, I've heard it put is, okay, the first order desire is like the thing you want, right? It could be like, okay, the pie. And then the second order desire is you want the thing you want, right? Like you, you actually do like that considered desire, you actually want to eat the pie. Like the example of, you know, first and second order desires being out of a line, an extreme example is addiction, right? Yes. Where you have, okay, someone wants the drug, right? They viscerally want the drug, whether it's cocaine, opioids, alcohol, nicotine, whatever. But then there could be, they take a step back and like, actually, I don't want it. Like it makes me feel bad. I don't want to. So addiction is a perfect example of those things being out of alignment. Right. That's right. And in fact, there's much to be said about addiction. But one point I would make along the lines that we've been discussing is that you can also see this not just in terms of having conflicting desires in the present, but you can see it in in a kind of temporal way. That is, in terms of my absolute immediate desire, it's absolutely to have pleasure now. But there's some later self that will have to pay the price for that. And to what extent do I honor the interests or desires of that later self that would prefer to be thin or not hung over or not impoverished because I've gambled away all my money on NFL football or wherever I've done it? So you're, you're absolutely right. 
Well, let's talk about how our ideas about self-control have changed over time. And what I love about your book is that you take readers through this sort of a cultural tour of the idea of self-control. And uh, you have an entire chapter devoted to the ancient Greeks. And I love this because first, I love the ancient Greeks. But one of the things I love about the Greeks is that they thought about these complex, nuanced, psychological ideas. And they just come up with a single word that would encapsulate it. And the Greeks had this word for self-control, and it was akrasia. So tell us about akrasia. Right, weakness of the will. And that is uh, something they were very aware of. I mean, the wonderful thing about the Greeks, as you imply, is that when you turn to them, you find all of our dilemmas, all of our, all of our issues and concerns, they wrestled with all of it. And they did so with, with great clarity and even poetry. So it's interesting to look at how they coped with these issues. And it's interesting to bear in mind how they lived. They lived in, in smaller communities. People knew each other. But, you, know, you were seen by servants and, and you were seen by neighbors and spouses and so forth. It was a small world. And so they paid a lot of attention to this. Plato and Aristotle in particular paid attention to it. Plato had the idea that what we did when, if I said, you know, I'm not going to eat that whole pie, but then I went ahead and did it. He, he said, well, I just changed my mind, you know, because he didn't think anybody could knowingly do something that they felt was a bad thing to do. So I just changed my mind. And for a while, I thought it was a good idea. And then I finished eating and maybe I realized that it wasn't. And Aristotle, I think, had a more sophisticated or cynical view, and cynical is the wrong word, but he had a more sophisticated view in which, and he said that, as as someone put it, reason is dragged about by desire, you know? And so you have these simultaneous, these conflicting desires, and he really expected us to be disciplined and to both Plato and Aristotle felt it was important, you know, but Aristotle f- expected us to be disciplined and to be accountable for ourselves and to to find the mean. And he didn't mean just divide everything right down the middle. He said, you know, use judgment, use a kind of practical wisdom to determine which pole you should be near. How much should you eat? No pie. Should you eat the whole pie? Where do you belong in there? And I might add on a practical level, which I guess we'll talk about in a while, practical matters, but you know, it's, it's always easier. Abstinence is always easier than temperance. So it's in some respects, it's easier to have no pie than just one small piece. But in any case, the Greeks were on this. They had a whole bunch of different distinctions. You know, Aristotle, for example, talked about the continent man who restrained his desires versus the temperate man who he didn't have desires that were all that powerful, say for gambling or for whatever, infidelity or any of any of that sort of thing. And so they made they made a whole bunch of these distinctions, Aristotle in particular. But the main thing is they understood that this was a human affliction, a part of the human condition, and they understood that it can be an expression of character. So they they had, I thought, a sophisticated awareness of these issues. Yeah, and you talk about the reason they were likely so focused on self-controls that they're a democratic form of government. This idea they believed if you wanted to have a democracy that's led by free people, you needed to have people who were in control of their base desires. Yeah, I think that then as now, if you want to have a thriving democracy and you want a free people, those people need to be able to regulate themselves in some way. And that in turn requires some kind of education, some kind of 
conditioning toward values, some kind of social structures that make it possible. You know, it's it's almost impossible to do this kind of thing successfully all alone. I, I'm not sure that can happen. So I think that democracy is absolutely dependent, civil society is absolutely dependent on the ability of individuals to regulate their desires. So the Greeks, self-control is important. You move into the Romans, and an important philosophy for a lot of Romans was the philosophy of Stoicism. And they seem to take this idea of self-control and just like put it on steroids. Absolutely. You know, that was central, I think, to the Stoic conception of a virtuous life. And, you know, each of us bore the weight, in a sense, of his own well-being, his own outlook. The only thing you could control was your response to things. And this was pretty much the highest value to them. And, you know, that carried forward. I mean, all the way across the centuries, I mean, through the Puritans, the Victorians, and so forth, all of whom have a bad name now. They're a bunch of party poopers and so forth. But they did understand certain things about human nature. You know, the way that we can go off the rails, the way that society can become disorganized and violent and inhospitable to its members and to the future. All those things can happen if we don't regulate ourselves and subordinate our desires to some extent to tomorrow and to the needs of others. Well, yes. Okay. The the Stoics had an emphasis on self-control. As you said, this got carried over into Christianity where a lack of self-control became a sin. A lot of, you've looked at the seven deadly sins, a lot. It's all about people who who lacked self-control. They gave into their their gluttony, their lust, their vanity, et cetera. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day. I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Okay, so for most of Western history, self-control has really been important. You can see this in other cultures as well. If you look at in Chinese culture, Asian cultures, Confucianism was all about controlling yourself and making sure you're doing the right thing in this certain social context. You can see the similar things in, in Hinduism as well. But in the 20th century, you had this guy named Freud who he's put into motion a radical change of how we think about self-control. What was Freud's ideas and how did they influence what we think about self-control? Well, I guess you could say that Freud's real emphasis, I guess, aside from Freud, was, and his lust for renown, Freud's real emphasis was, was autonomy, we might say, you know? And he wanted to liberate us from taboos and constraints that we had perhaps internalized 
that we didn't believe in or that were oppressive to us or that were contrary to our deepest needs, needs that were not illegitimate, you know, for love or whatever. And that was valuable. That was a valuable contribution by Freud. But autonomy can eventually become license. And that was a problem. Another important aspect of Freud's work was the rise of faith in the importance of the unconscious. And, you know, you go down that road and it's very easy to come to the idea that maybe we don't have any conscious control over our behavior. You know, maybe it's all mysterious, it's all predetermined, maybe there's not even any free will. And so you could see that that he was a kind of a portal to a different outlook, a different way of living, and ideas that were both at once beneficial and dangerous. And that's true of so many things, I suppose, right? Of money and and alcohol and so many things that are both good and bad. And so, you know, people took these ideas and, and ran with them or kept the parts that were most convenient. And here we are. Yeah. So, I mean, one idea I think people have taken from Freud, and I think, I think Freud would say, well, yeah, you just misinterpreted this idea that I had, was, you know, neurosis is caused by repression, right? So the whole yes. point of therapy was like, okay, you're supposed to like maybe figure out what's causing the repression. You can release it. Well, then I think people have taken this idea that, well, if neurosis is caused by repression, just don't repress anything and just give in to your yes. basis, base desires and just like do whatever you want. And, you know, if it feels good, do it. And that's led to this sort of a shift from self-control is good to, well, self-control is actually bad. You actually need to not be controlled. Very well put. I, I couldn't have put it better. I mean, an example in that arena that I recall in the book is anger. You know, there was this hydraulic theory sort of of anger and many other things that goes back to Freud that, you know, if we, if we didn't vent the anger, it would turn inward and we would have ulcers or we would be repressed or we would eat our liver out or whatever phrase you want, fanciful phrase you want to use. But that's not really how anger seems to work. In fact, anger seems to feed on itself and, and great displays of anger only seem to lead to even greater anger. And in fact, controlling our expressions even seems to reduce anger. You know, so there is, you know, it works in the mind and the body, it works in both directions. But in any case, that idea did take hold that, you know, you had to, you had to let these things out. And you probably could, you lay that at Freud and other things. I mean, even, even talk therapy, Freud was, if not the inventor, then an early, I mean, people always sought to speak to other people about their problems, but Freud created a kind of a structure for this that implied that thwarted desires had to do with disease. And that helped the whole disease model to, to spread, I think. So he played important roles in a number of respects in helping to change attitudes about the here and now. And I, I might add, it's possible for a long time, we undervalued the present, but it's hard for us to recall how hard life was in the past and how important it was for people to be pretty tough with themselves. You know, things have changed quite a bit. So not only, okay, we, with Freud, we had the introduction of this idea that, okay, maybe you have desires in yourself in the unconscious that you don't have any control over. Maybe you should give in to them so you don't develop neurosis. Another thing that happened that caused a shift of how we think about self-control 
in the 20th century and 21st century is the where we we got we were able to get scientific with self-control before self-control is mainly a thing that philosophers and theologians thought about now you had scientists we had neuroscientists cognitive behavioral scientists geneticists looking at self-control and this kind of some of the stuff it chips away about what we think about self-control so for example some research has shown that executive control or self-control is hereditary correct Yes, that's quite correct. It's it's associated with conscientiousness. Most things are at least partially hereditary, and self-regulation seems to be one of those things. In addition, there are episodes through history that have helped us to see that certain parts of the brain are more implicated than others. I mean, it's it's obviously a very complex arena, but there's one particular episode that I talk about in the book, which is the famous case of Phineas Gage, who I think he was a, a railroad guy was uh, trying to blast through rock and an explosion drove a huge, a big steel rod right through his head. And it came in underneath the cheekbone and went out through the front of his, his head. And amazingly, he survived this, but there was damage to the front of his brain, an area we now know is highly important in terms of what's called executive function. And Gage survived this. He had a wonderful doctor who helped him overcome the infection at a time before antibiotics. But Gage was a changed man. He was completely different. Before the accident, he had been known for his reliability and patience. And um, his employer thought he was great. He was a supervisor. And I think his men thought he was terrific as well. Afterwards, he became a guy who was consumed only with his own desires, he became short-tempered, he became unreliable, he wandered, he led a completely different life, and he seemed to be, Every people commonly use that kind of expression, he's a changed man. And this was a, an early episode that helped to make it clear how important that frontal area of the brain is in, in these kinds of things. Well, yeah, another example you gave that's similar to Phineas Gage, there's a guy you know, a decade or so ago, where normal guy just kind of laid back, nondescript, but then suddenly he just, like his sexual drive just went out of control, started looking at porn a lot, and then he got to the point where he was molesting his daughter, I think, and his wife finally turned and was like, this is, something's wrong with this guy. What ended up happening, they discovered there was a tumor in his brain that was basically pressing some part of his prefrontal cortex, and as soon as they removed the tumor, everything went back to normal. Yes, I recall that. Yes. And in fact, if I recall correctly, at one point it grew back and he had to have it treated or removed again. And at such times, he again, he was just, he did things that would have been absolutely inconceivable. And it's a very interesting and rich area. I mean, defense attorneys in murder cases have increasingly tried to make an argument that the defendant, the accused, had some kind of brain disorder or brain problem or insufficient development in the brain or something of that nature to mitigate culpability for a murder. And it hasn't really, I don't believe that it's gotten a lot of traction in the courts because, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but people have all kinds of problems when they commit crimes. And But you're absolutely right. So it's clear that there's no mind-body distinction. It's clear that there is an important dimension of this that is just a physical manifestation of of our the way our brains are made. 
You know, and, and related to this idea of looking or thinking about self-control through this more biological lens is the way our ideas around addiction and substance abuse have changed. You know, now we have, you know, more questions as to the extent of how much, con- you know, control or agency people have over those things. That's a, it's a very interesting area and it raises the question of the disease model, which has been expanding over the years. So that if you have an addiction, say, to alcohol, that would be considered a disease. And if you have an addiction to opioids, maybe that's a disease. And there are difficulties with that model. That model makes sense in some ways, but in some ways it, it does not. And But what we can say is by expanding the realm of disease, we narrow the realm of agency. You know, after all, if somebody gets a disease, whatever it is, Crohn's disease or something, you know, that's that just happened. You know, what can you do? But it's a little different with these other things. I mean, when we have a friend who has an alcohol problem and want to help that friend, we might say to that friend, it's very important that you get help, you know, because the drinking is out of control and you have to get some help. And implicit in that suggestion is the idea that maybe there is some agency there because after all, if they are completely a slave of compulsion, how could they get help? How would help do any good? They are completely without agency in the face of a disease. Now, you know, on the other hand, some of these things seem so intractable that it's hard not to turn to that model. But that is something that's been expanding. And over the years, you noticed in the media, you'll see rhetorically all kinds of addictions. We started out maybe with alcohol as a disease and addiction to drugs were a disease, but you then come to addiction to your ex-lover or addiction to television, addiction to shopping. There was just a whole range of things that represent an expansion of this realm and that they do raise questions about, you know, how far are we going to take this or whether there is at any point some agency involved in our lives. Okay. So given that our genes can affect how much self-control we have, can make us more conscientious or less conscientious than other people, tumors can affect us, brain damage can affect our self-control. You talk about how hormones can weaken our self-control. Like when men have are high in testosterone, they are more likely to take risk, et cetera. What does that say about self-control? Do we really have it? That's a great question. Maybe that's the essential question. You know, if I were to put a gun to your head and say, don't blink, you will blink no matter what, eventually. You may try not to for a few seconds, but sooner or later, you're going to blink, you know. But if I put a gun to your head and say, don't eat another piece of pie or uh, don't place another bet or don't have another cocktail, as long as I'm standing there with that thing, you won't do it. So there just there is some essential difference between behaviors that are fully compulsory and those that are or involuntary, shall we say, and those that are to some great extent voluntary. And it's important not to elide that because as the economists know, people do respond to incentives, you know, and certainly the incentive of that gun I pointed at you is going to affect your behavior. But similarly, if we impose much higher taxes on alcohol. Places that have tried this have found, somewhat surprisingly, that drinking goes down, that alcohol purchases actually do have some price sensitivity. So in a number of European countries, they have much more expensive alcohol. Some of these countries have greater drinking problems or have had than than we do. So, you know, again and again, we do see that that people respond to incentives. And so I think that uh, there is, you know, there's reason There's reason for optimism that 
there's a lot that we can do in this arena if we if we know how to go about it. Yeah, and I think this goes to the question: Does free will exist? And I, I've you know people say, well, no, free will doesn't exist. It's all determined by genes, hormones, social situation, blah blah whatever. But I, I mean, I think it'd be hard to live in a world where we didn't assign responsibility for you know people for their actions. If they committed a crime, was well, they didn't really. They didn't have any choice. That they were sort of destined to do that, and that wouldn't probably not lead to a great place. Yeah, I just I don't see how that can be anything more than a kind of academic position. Because, I mean, there are professors who hold that view and then expect their students to study for tests and give them grades based on how they performed. And I just don't know how life can go on on that basis. I mean, I don't know how we can have a legal system. I don't know how we could we would bother with incentives. I mean, people, I've talked briefly, casually to some people who hold those views and they live sort of just the same as the rest of us. They act as, they certainly act as if they have control over their actions. And in fact, they seem to have a great deal of control over their actions. They're very often the most highly and carefully self-regulated individuals, you know, people with advanced degrees and so on. (laughs) And, you know, if they they need to research school systems. They do so carefully, buying a toaster oven, whatever it is. They don't just say, well, it's all predetermined and whatever I do, I do. So, you know, it's hard to take that terribly seriously, but I do think it's a somewhat corrosive idea that as it filters out, you know, into the world, it's very unlikely to be helpful. Okay. So let's summarize where we've been here because we've covered a lot of ground. So self-control in ancient times was seen as a virtue, and then a lack of self-control was seen as a a character defect or even a sin. But then various factors changed our ideas of self-control. First, Freud. Freud gave people this idea that repression might be unhealthy. And then also, we've been able to scientifically study self-control, and um, we've discovered various biological factors that can make it harder for some people to exercise self-control. And, you know, adding these nuances, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's helped us understand that self-control can be complex. I mean, we can be more pathetic maybe for some people because it's just going to be harder for them. But at the same time, you know, we still have free will and there's a need for self-control. So if you want to live a flourishing life, you know, like stay out of debt, stay off drugs, don't become obese, you know, you have to exercise self-control. But something else you highlight in the book is that even though we still need to exercise self-control, there are aspects of our modern environment that's made it uniquely hard to do so. So what's different about our environment today? Several things have changed. Number one, there is a change in in our set of beliefs, uh, taboos and social constraints and religious practice and the whole ideology that we should defer gratification or we should deny ourselves. That that whole ideology has weakened considerably, you know, since in the past half century, I would say. I don't think anyone can deny that. And uh, tradition has weakened. People are mobile different kinds of families. More people live alone, which is disinhibiting in itself. Uh, So a number of customs and social factors and so on have been disinhibiting in this way. Another thing is technology, and this has been enormous. Technology has helped to make us richer. Technology has made things more available in the example. There's an example, as I recall, that I have in my book that, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, you know, it took hours you to get a, a roast chicken. You had to chase the chicken around the yard and wring its neck and pluck it and 
all this kind of thing. And now you can just sort of drive through, you know, El Pollo Loco or Kentucky Fried Chicken or Popeyes or somewhere and get whatever you want. In fact, now you can have it delivered. You can take your phone out of your pocket and just tap, tap, and it shows up. And the cost of that chicken has absolutely plummeted. You know, maybe the chicken used to take you several hours work to earn. Now it takes you 5, 10, 15 minutes. And that leads me to the third big factor, which has been capitalism, which is uh, certainly a system that whose virtues I recognize. I don't see a, a better alternative. But it's a system that is constantly trying to give us what we want. And it's a very dangerous thing sometimes to be able to get what you want. And it's a, it's a kind of a bifurcated system because in our role as workers, we're asked to show tremendous restraint and channel our appetites or set them aside. But then in our role as consumers, you know, it's sort of Jekyll and Hyde. In our role as consumers, we're we're encouraged in every possible way to throw over all restraints and all concern with tomorrow. And so these factors, I think, have made it much easier for us to answer to, let's call them instinctual needs or desires that we have, rather than our more considered desires for ourselves. And those are big changes, I think. Okay, so we've talked about how the idea of self-control has been chipped away in the 20th and 21st century. So we have that problem. We have this problem where we live in an environment where there's just, we have a lot more freedom. We can get whatever we want at a click of a button. We can gamble from our phones. We can buy stuff from our phones. We can you know, get porn from our phones. I mean, whatever we have instant access to. So what do we do to steal our self-control? Like, what is the research day? What did you discover on how we can become more self-control given that our environment is more, we have more temptations? Well, so I'm going to reveal my age, you know, and say that is the six, what they used to call the $64,000 question, you know, how do we cope? And the good news, and I think it's quite good news, is really there are some very simple techniques available to anybody that can help enormously in this arena, you know, and the main concept to accept is a kind of humility. Willpower alone is rarely enough. You really shouldn't count on it, you know? I mean, you may be able to resist, I don't know, a second piece of pie or something. Will you be able to resist embezzling $10 million if you are absolutely sure no one will ever know about it? That's a different question. So don't rely on willpower. The best thing you can do, and B.F. Skinner and many others understood this very well, is to control your environment. You can't affect your genes, of course. You can't choose your parents, but you can choose your environment, which is the other half of it, and the other part of it anyway. And that can be enormously beneficial if you want to lose weight or control your weight or eat a healthier diet. Don't have ice cream in the house, you know. If you don't want to drink or don't want to drink much, you know, don't have that stuff in the house. Don't go near a bar. Think about your friends. Don't spend a lot of time with people who are going to do the things that you want to avoid doing. In fact, the social part of this, you could say, in, in a sense, is a part of your environment, but it's absolutely crucial. I had a good friend who was the, the son of an, an alcoholic, and my friend managed to enjoy a beer every day, one beer every day. His wife, his friends, everyone knew that he only had one beer a day. I think sometimes he would buy one at a time at a store if he could. And everyone knew that. And if he departed from that, it would be an extraordinary almost a crisis, I suppose, you know, everybody would kind of say, oh my God, what, what are you doing? What's happening to you? And these were people he cared about. And this was something that helped him 
to have the enjoyment of that beer without going overboard. So you have to control your environment. You have to enlist friends and family. It doesn't mean that we have to live at all times under a kind of surveillance. I mean, if, if you live a healthy life, it, these problems are not as great as they may seem. But you've got to set up a structure for success. You know, so decide if you're going to have lunch with a friend and you both care about this stuff, you can, you can agree to order for one another because it's likely that you'll order healthier foods for someone else than yourself. And you can also order in advance or pledge in advance to order a salad rather than something that might be less healthy. There's another thing I want to mention, and if you don't mind, I will mention it now. If I'm going on too long, let me know. But there's a technique called pre-commitment that is invaluable, and it takes us back to the Greeks. When Odysseus was on his way home to Ithaca from the Trojan War, he and his men on their ship had to cope with the sirens who would, their magnificent song would lure men to their destruction. So Odysseus wanted to hear the song, but he didn't want the ship to be destroyed. So he told the men to stop up their ears, tie him to the mast, and he would hear the song and they would get through the sirens that way. And he did. And there are some famous paintings, fanciful paintings of this, this episode and the Odyssey. Well, you know, you can do the same. And there's a whole variety of ways that talk a great deal about pre-commitment. I mean, marriage is a form of pre-commitment in a sense. Tattoos, are, I suppose, are pre-commitment in some sense. Committing yourself in the future to your, your idea today about what is beautiful or worthy. But, you, you know, you can go further. You can, um, there are even websites that will let you pledge to pay a certain amount of money if you don't get your weight to a certain level by a certain date. And that money can go to a charity of your choosing or the money can go to what they call an anti-charity. There was a writer named John Baer back in the 70s who pledged some thousands of dollars to the American Nazi party if he did not lose a certain amount of weight by a certain date. And, of course, the Nazis were anathema to Mr. Baer, and he did lose the weight because he didn't want his hard-earned money to go to such an awful group of people. So there's just a whole host of these kinds of things that you can do to prevent yourself from going too far off the rails. And if you if you treat yourself in this way, you know, like a, like a sort of one of the pigeons in B.F. Skinner's lab at Harvard, or like, oh my, I hate to say this, but almost as if you were a very sophisticated robot, you can use rewards. You know, I'm only going to have a glass of wine if I write at least three pages today. Otherwise, no wine, you know, uh, with dinner. There's just a host of these things that you can do. I talk about a great many of them in the book. And finally, cultivating habits is crucially important. You must cultivate good ones. And you can solve so many difficulties and just they dissolve as difficulties because if your habit is to do, is to do the right thing, the thing that you really want to do, such as to take a walk every day, something as simple as that. Find a partner. Find a partner to whom you're accountable. Go walking together. These are simple things. These are not uh, rocket science. Anybody, anybody can do these things. And I, I do believe they can make a very large difference. Okay, so to kind of recap there, summarize, control your environment. So if you have a problem with surfing the web when you don't want to, put a, a web blocker on. There's plenty of apps out there. The iPhone has you know the screen time controls now. Choose your friends wisely because they're going to shape what you want and um, it will help you get to where you want to be and have more self-control. Pre-commitments and then develop habits. Brett, there's one last thing I, I forgot to mention that it's important. And that is not to try to do too much. People who study this find that, for example, if you're trying to finish your 
your PhD dissertation, and you also want to quit smoking, finish the dissertation, then tackle the smoking. You know, Barack Obama knew that he, he should quit smoking, but I don't believe he was going to do it while he was in the White House. It was just too difficult to be president. So uh, be smart, be patient, one thing at a time. Don't exhaust yourself trying to do everything at once. And don't think that a single lapse, you had a cigarette, you had a drink, whatever it is, is the end of the world. Tomorrow is another day, and you can just resume where you left off. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, thank you. The, the book is, I think, still on, still in stores, still online. The hardcover is called We Have Met the Enemy, and the softcover is called Temptation. And I have a website, just axed.com, A-K-S-T.com, where there's some more of my work, and I have a book coming out later this year about American pacifists during World War II. Well, fantastic. Well, Dan Axt, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's pleasure's all been mine. My guest today was Daniel Axt. He's the author of the book, Temptation. It's available on Amazon.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash self-control, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on listening to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.